Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. You thought the earthquake was a lot of energy, huh? You could probably see the, the whole other dimension of energy as you start to come back to using your voices. That's a little, yeah, thanks. Um, for, sometimes people wonder if they're going to remember how to use their voice. I, I don't think anybody had a problem today. It's amazing how quickly you get sucked back into some beautiful things. It's not to say that that talking and con- connection aren't aren't wonderful, but I noticed that at ten after seven, when I came into the hall, there were three people here. <coughs> So I wanted to talk tonight about, first about this period of transition, just to acknowledge it, and uh, then some words about applying the meditation to our lives as we go back to whatever awaits us, and uh, learning to express the teachings, express the Dharma, We'll be talking in more detail tomorrow about integration, but I wanted to share some reflections this evening uh, starting on that that process. First of all, about this period of transition and, and leaving the retreat. It's a very interesting space. Sometimes People are so excited. You just can't wait now to, to meet what lies ahead. And you have a lot of enthusiasm and energy. Looking forward to uh, renewing relationships and connections. Telling them what the retreat was like. Of course, that you can get a lot of mileage on. <clears throat> Probably rehearsed that story a number of times already. Sometimes it's kind of scary. Uh, For a lot of people it is. And actually you can be excited and enthusiastic one moment and then scared stiff the next. If you find yourself going through that, it's quite understandable and natural. Because what we're doing is leaving a very safe community, supportive space for us to be with ourselves after practicing for 10 or 20 days to perhaps start to make friends with ourselves, it's almost like we say, okay, bye, (laughs) as we get pulled out into the busyness. And there is a sense of loss often, a feeling of sadness or bittersweet uh, experience in the heart. Because out there, there's probably not going to be the same kind of support. I'm sure there won't be the same kind of support unless you're going to a monastery or (laughs) to a next retreat. 
where people understand what it's like to, uh, to be so quiet and listening. And even if you live in a spiritual community, uh, there's all the stuff that, that comes up from that, from just living life and interacting. And so if you find yourself going through that, going through lots of different emotions, it's fine. And just give yourself the space to go through that and honor that. <clears throat> but as you leave here, it's really a challenge to, to find a way that, that you can actually apply the principles that, uh, that you've been getting in touch with. You know, you hear these profound teachings, the Four Noble Truths and possibility of awakening, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, all of those very inspiring teachings and their noble ideas. But then there's often a discrepancy between those ideas and then when you go home and you see all of that stuff. First time I, I did a, a longer retreat, I, I mentioned this almost every integration period, as we started to, to talk, out of my mouth came insecurity and judgment and paranoia and all the stuff that was there at the beginning and went running to the teacher saying it didn't work and was reminded that it's not about getting rid of anything but more and more learning to make friends with all of those things that we've been contacting throughout the time here. And it's a challenge not just for people who are starting in the meditation or old students, people whose lives have been devoted to this, teachers. Uh, I don't think anybody up here is free of greed, hatred, and delusion yet. Sometimes people have that idea, you know, that, <laughs> that short of full enlightenment, at least, at least these teachers have it pretty much together. Well, <laughs> I want to dispel that notion. <laughs> but I, I wanted to, to share with you, I was listening to, to uh, part of a conference on, uh, it was a conference at the Buddhist uh, Center, Center for Buddhist Studies at Barry, where some teachers from all different traditions, including Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, and great Tibetan Rinpoche, uh, Zen master, Theravadan monks, and um, some very incredible beings gathered to discuss Dharma points and the whole teaching process. And they spent a good portion of this conference talking about how they can actually live the teachings and how there's so many projections that sometimes people have uh, when you seem to be devoted your whole, devoting your whole life to this. One, uh, at one point, Sharon Salzberg said, you know, it's amazing. I, people come and they say, um, oh, gee, your, your heart is so open or you've been so helpful, you're so wise. And, and she would try to, to dispel the projections and she'd say, you know, I really have a lot of stuff that I'm working on and I, I, I have lots of, lots of struggles in my life. And the person said, oh, you're so humble, too. <laughs> <laughs> and we do that not 
necessarily or only with teachers, but other people in our lives who seem to have it down. And so other uh, Rinpoche, who was at this conference, he said he practiced since he was a very little child, sending happiness and, and loving kindness for all sentient beings, and he would visualize all beings in, on the planet and the universe as these little dots and just beam compassion and loving kindness to them. And then when a real person would get in front of them, he'd find it very difficult. And he said, gosh, why is it so easy when there are little dots and <laughs> when there's a person in front of you? It, it's a little bit harder. Or as Lucy from Peanuts says, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> so can we move from a conceptual understanding of the Dharma and a real valuing of the wisdom and compassion to actually living it day to day. <clears throat> Wanted to offer some reflections on that, some things to keep in mind as far as attitudes to pr in practice and also uh, perhaps some, some helpful hints or things that I find helpful to work with. <coughs> First, getting a sense of what practice is. Sometimes, especially people who've been drawn to the Buddhist teachings and the whole vibration of the Buddha, you know, there's different expressions of the truth and the Buddhist vibration is one of deep stillness. You see the Buddha sitting quietly with a half smile And there's a kind of inspiration and compelling feeling that that sometimes evokes, that spirituality and certainly uh, the Buddhist teaching is about equanimity and balance. But sometimes there's the notion that it means a kind of detached equanimity, a kind of unruffledness in the face of confusion. And in those efforts to develop a calm and a balance, there can sometimes be an indifference, a coolness, and a kind of um, resistance to the busyness of life, especially coming from the quiet of a retreat. Sometimes people are in the middle, the middle of a deep retreat process or an intensive period of practice where the only thing that really draws them is to go keep on sitting. And that's something beautiful to be honored if it's, if it's coming from that place of inspiration and a calling. But if it's coming from a place of not wanting to get into the busyness of things, not being ready for that, then um, that's, I think, a misunderstanding of what practice is about. So, to balance out the equanimity, which sometimes is coupled to the word non-attachment, uh, it's important to remember and keep in mind what we've been doing over these 10, 20 days, that the heart element is a very important component of this practice. That's why we do metta each day 
for years we didn't do that actually and uh, it's been wonderful to see the value of it for <coughs> the last few years just to remind I mean we can we used to at the end of the retreat say oh and here's the metta practice and do it the last day or so but it's such an essential ingredient besides the formal metta I think as important as that doing the metta each day reminds us that right here in the mindfulness there's a spirit of metta. Sylvia gave a beautiful talk the first retreat, doing vipassana in the spirit of metta. This is how we can approach the moment with a kindness, with a friendliness, with a compassion for our difficulties, and also with a spirit of joy as well. One of the factors of enlightenment that was spoken of a few nights ago um, is sometimes expressed as keen interest, sometimes as rapture, and often as joy. To know that joy is not only okay, but it's a requisite for the awakened mind. I read a a book a couple of years ago uh, by Robert Johnson, the, the fellow who wrote he and she and we and you and they and all of those. Uh, on, uh, it was called Ecstasy, Understanding the Psychology of Joy. And he, uh, he's, he's a wonderful writer. And he uh, was talking about the divine, that the spiritual journey, uh, often we cut off that feeling of joy that it's actually a spiritual expression that needs, um, that's, that needs a voice, because otherwise we can bottle down that energy. Probably saw today, you know, just how much energy you had for life and the, the awe maybe being out in the monuments or connecting with people that, uh, that you felt close to or maybe that you didn't even know before, before today, or doing your walking meditation perhaps and being out among the, uh, the Joshua trees and, and the yucca plants and, and the desert, there's a sense of connection and awe and wonder that is a very important element that fuels the whole practice. And when we can bring that sense of heart to the moment, we don't, it doesn't become as much a, a chore to be here. That sense of wonder is tremendously um, helpful. And as we have seen over the course of the days, seen all the ways that our mind gets lost and confused, hopefully over time you've been developing a sense of kindness and compassion. If you haven't, then you've probably suffered a whole lot. You probably have suffered a whole lot anyway. But the sooner you bring a sense of compassion and see, oh, this is the human condition, this isn't only me, the more the spirit, the foundation is laid for clarity of seeing. So keeping that in mind, as you leave the retreat, when you find yourself getting lost and confused, it's that same attitude. Can I bring a kindness? Can I bring a caring? Can I bring a sense of 
delight and appreciation when things are sweet. Appreciation is different from grasping. Sometimes people have the idea that, oh, well, it's such a joyful moment, I shouldn't hold on to it. So I'll come back to my breath or I'll, I'll see something a bit more neutral. But mindfulness is connecting with all things and including the pleasant as well as the unpleasant. So while it's here, to fully experience it, whether it's here on the cushion or in your life, it's a grace, it's a gift from, from the Dharma or from the universe. The problem comes when we try to fix it or hold on to it and not let it go. You know, as mentioned the other night, and perhaps you're seeing here as we move from the, the silence to the, to the speech, there's a kind of letting go gracefully of that sweetness of the calm and the quiet. Another thing that we've been developing over our time here that has a tremendous value as we go out into the world is learning to listen more carefully. Learning to be a bit more sensitive to reality and to our thought patterns. It's really what mindfulness is about. Listening, not hearing, but listening. There's a kind of, or feeling you can think of in the internal sense, just kind of a, a being drawn to have more subtle sensitivity to your experience. And one place that it really helps is around listening to our thoughts, listening to the quality or the tone of our thoughts. You might have heard them all too glaringly or blaringly in the last few hours. They reverberate in the mind, as I said earlier, when, you're, when, you're quite, uh, when you've been quite still. But as you have practiced over time, you can start perhaps to get better at listening to the tone that the voices come in. Sometimes they're very harsh or grasping or fearful. Sometimes they're very connected and supportive. And if you take time to just listen a bit through giving space to all the thoughts that have come through in the last 10 or 20 days, you have a bit more choice, if you can listen carefully, to let the ones that don't serve you just come and go. Well, that's a, an interesting, bizarre thought. And the ones that do serve you to empower, that's where the responsibility comes in. And as you can listen a bit more carefully, you can hear the calling of your heart. You can hear your dharma. The word dharma refers not only to the Buddhist teachings and to the truth, reality of how things are, but your own inner calling, your own path, which is unique for you. And it's something to honor and uh, develop and learn to express. You, know, you don't have to think that uh, that doing practice means you just sit there and if you have a, a calling to develop something in you that that's an attachment or that's a desire. It's, 
It's the Dharma wanting to express itself through you. And so to listen to that more carefully and honor it. And that can change from time to time. Just when you think you know the answers, the universe comes along and says, oh yeah? And so what might be true for you today perhaps will change in a month, in five months, in a year. It's okay. If you're listening to the place that it comes from, you can trust it. I, uh, a number of years ago, went to a psychic who was a, who was a very wise man. He, he lived in Denver. He since passed away. And I was at a crossroads in my life. I said, what should I do? I had four different choices, very different choices, going to Asia or moving out to the, to the West Coast or staying in New York and teaching, uh, teaching school. Um, going up to Barry, working on staff there. And I said, what should I do? What should I do? I th- this guy knew a lot of answers. I figured, this is a guy to ask. And he, he thought for a moment, got in touch with me, and felt my aura. And he said, well, I won't tell you what to do, but I will tell you something. Oh, yeah? He said, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it doesn't matter? That's my life you're talking about. He said, as long as you're stuck, as long as you're frozen in indecision, afraid to make the right choice, then you're paralyzed. There's no movement. But if you just listen to what feels right now and put one foot in front of the other, then the forces that be, he believed in spirit guides and guardians and stuff like that. And he said, but whatever you call it, the Dharma, he said, the forces that, that be can help you, can maneuver, and you can get a sense, oh, this feels right, or no, this doesn't feel right. Okay, I've done that for a little while, and now time to change the course. It doesn't matter. Just keep on listening carefully, listening quietly. Listen to the tone that it comes in. It's a a story of Gandhi uh, mobilizing thousands of, of people for a great demonstration, great salt march. And the night before the march, calling in all his top lieutenants and aides and saying, uh, we can't go tomorrow. We have to cancel our plans. And they all were totally astonished and speechless. They said, what do you mean, cancel the plans? We have everything ready. You said this is what we have to do weeks ago, and now everything is in place. And he said, my commitment is to truth, not consistency. And so we have to keep on getting in touch with what the truth is for us, which obviously is constantly changing. Something else that we can take from the practice and apply it in our lives is a willingness to grow. Perhaps you have had or an experience of an enthusiasm of waking up and growing. It's not so easy out there in that busy pace to grow because usually it involves some pain and it involves a kind of humbling 
One, one practice, uh, one teacher called this practice one insult after a number. It's a very, uh, after another. It's a, it's a very humbling practice. One insult and there's another and there's another. And as we can be a bit more humble as we approach our life, you see that what you thought was true a week ago is no longer true. That's what learning is about. This is sometimes called insight meditation. In order to have an experience of, aha, it means that you need to let go of what you already knew. Otherwise, you just pat yourself on the back and say, see, I knew all the time. That's not growing. That's not really learning. And that means not playing it safe. You know, being with the familiar, but taking risks in your life. It makes it exciting. It makes an adventure. And you're probably going to blow it from time to time. But one thing that perhaps the meditation can show you is that your ideas, your beliefs, aren't always accurate. I was having a really great conversation a few days ago with um, Roger Walsh, who left the retreat early, who's a wonderful person to hang out with. We were talking about uh, our, what our practice is, what our, our main uh, focuses of, of practice are. And he said his practice these days, and he's done more retreats and intensive practice than anybody I know of. He holds the all-time record for three-month courses, plus <laughs> he just loves to sit. Uh, and uh, there's not all that much that I learned from him. Uh, at least as much as he, he gets from coming here to the retreats. And he said, my main practice is letting go or not buying into my limited beliefs. That anytime I see some belief that's a limiting idea, I drop it. We got into a pretty interesting metaphysical conversation about how the universe is created out of thoughts. And anytime you see that yourself say, saying to yourself, oh, I can't do that, or yeah, I've never been able to do that, or um, well, maybe it'll take another 20 years before this happens, there you are creating a reality for yourself. You don't know. Can you be willing to be wrong? Can you be willing to drop all ideas of what you think is going to happen? Because ultimately, how we hold our experience of reality creates it. We can hold pain that we're going through as a problem, or we can hold it as a growing experience. We can see confusion in our heart as something that causes a lot of despair. Oh, stuck there again. Or as the first chance to meet it with some, uh, some excitement and enthusiasm of another way. You don't know. You really don't know. Christmas Humphreys, this person who's written a lot on Buddhist thought, has a great line that, that, that I've mentioned before. The one miracle that this path has to offer is a change of heart. 
And what that means is looking at your attitudes and how you hold something has a dramatic effect on what you're creating. So the whole process becomes seeing how you get caught and then perhaps having a new attitude towards that. So you don't, on top of that, have a whole judgment that says, ah, caught again, damn it. But to see, wow, great, caught again, now I can wake up. There's a, a passage that I, uh, I read on lots of retreats that I'll share with people about this, in case you haven't heard it before, called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It's by Portia Nelson. She says, Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. (laughs) This is the learning process. And the more you can see yourself fall into the hole and see there are other possibilities, you don't have to keep on recreating them. What the practice does also is give us another perspective that we can lead our life in. The earthquake the last couple of days, it was amazing. People's stories just got cut like that. Whatever drama you found yourself in, oh, my job, my relationship, or my knee pain, when the earth moved under your feet, you probably had that fly out the window. It's amazing just to see a whole other perspective within which your little mind games play around in. And it's a tremendously freeing perspective, whether you call it the Dharma or God or having death over your shoulder. When I was a kid, astronomy was my big thing, just kind of like going up, going out at night, looking up at the stars. Wow. It does change your life a little bit as far as how you relate to how important your story is. And that bigger picture lets us play a bit more in our lives. So whatever you touched here, whatever you call absolute or the divine or the selfless, it's not that you're going to be living your life in that mode all the time. In fact, you'd be having a lot of trouble if you only lived in that reality and forgot that You stop on the red and you go on the green. But what you touch here, it informs your whole life. It gives you a wider perspective where you're not so 
much caught in thinking this is the only show in town, one right here in my brain. And when we felt the earthquake the other day, the other day some people talked about the sense of powerlessness and helplessness. Well, the other side of that is awe. Did you feel that too? How immense, how enormous, how big the game is. So much bigger than our comprehension of it. It's incredible. And so, the idea that you had control in the first place is totally absurd, wasn't it? As you can let go of that control, that's what trust is about. Each moment, each moment is followed by another one. Some things that I found to be and find to be helpful in working in, in my own process as I leave the retreat, and it's a challenge for me, particularly this next one that I'm going to mention, is slowing down. It's so tricky how the transitions trap us. Have you seen it in, in, uh, in just the last day or so? You know, you might even in, even in the middle of the retreat be doing the sitting and then find yourself in the walking and forget how you got there and, and you, it takes you a few moments or maybe longer to settle down. Those in-between transitions that confuse us. And so when you can remember that in your own life and give yourself time in between to not fit five things into something that it's only humanly possible to do three, you're really helping not only yourself but everybody around you. Because when we rush, it prevents our connection with what is going on. It prevents our connection with ourselves or with others. You can't really be present if you're thinking about the next thing to happen or getting everything on your list checked off. And so that's very helpful to drop into the present and also to get in touch with what it is that you really want to say, what it is that your intention, where your intention is coming from. When you can slow down enough to listen, Sangha, obviously, is incredibly helpful. If you were to do this retreat by yourself, it probably would have been a different experience. But we can take refuge in the Sangha. The word for, um, for teacher in Theravadan is Kalyanamita, or spiritual friend. And we're all each other's spiritual friends. So that when you're feeling a bit confused, or your doubt is high, or you wonder what's the point of it all, you take great support and sustenance. And so remembering and honoring that as you go home. came across this, uh, this quote. Actually, I think I got it from a Celestial Seasonings tea box, but I'm not quite <laughs> sure. But it was Thomas Hughes saying, Blessed are they who have the gift of making friends, for it is one of God's great gifts it involves many things, but above all, the power of going out of oneself and appreciating whatever is noble and loving in another.
And there's lots to appreciate. There's lots that's noble and loving in, in all of us. And so to get out of your own story and connect with that and see what's beautiful, be reminded of it in somebody else's heart. What we're doing here is really what you've been told probably since you were a little kid, getting in touch with some very simple, basic truths about life. You know when you were young and they said, pay attention, be nice. It was true. It takes a while to get it. Oh, yeah, pay attention, be kind. Yeah, it changes your whole life. And it's so easy to forget. But we all know the value of it once we touch it deeply for ourselves. Being kind, having a presence, having courage to face this moment as we grow through our experiences. And what we're doing here is planting seeds that sprout. It's just like tending a garden. You plant the seeds and out they grow. Maybe not on your timetable. You might not even know what this retreat is about for another two months or six months or two years. But they're sprouting. And every moment that you've been mindful has been planting those kinds of seeds. And as they sprout more and more, there's a tremendous sense of appreciation for the Dharma. I think everybody has been touched by it here. And somebody came into the, uh, uh, an interview the other day and, and was, was greatly appreciative for, for the practice and what had happened. And uh, we talked about the only way to really repay the gift of the Dharma is to pass it on is to live it. If you've been moved and there's a, a great sense of gratitude, what else to do? It doesn't belong to anybody anyway, but just passing it on. And that leads to a whole area of service, of expressing your natural compassion, expressing your caring, moving again beyond your own story, not keeping away from the suffering, but touching it and just sharing it a bit, sharing a little bit more of your compassion and kindness. Not necessarily telling people about the Four Noble Truths, but just living the Dharma, being it. And it's a, a kind of responsibility that comes as one becomes more and more rooted in practice. Am I going to add more greed, hatred, and delusion to the world, or more kindness, generosity, and wisdom. And it's amazing how over time it truly starts to change. It truly starts to transform. You don't have to do much about it other than have a deep commitment to develop it as best you can. And all the things, the impurities, the stuff that got in the way or that would confuse you, that starts to change and transform. And that's very inspiring. That's the best way to pass it on. So I'll finish with a, a quote, a passage that 
I want to share from uh, Alan Watts about the simplicity of the task. We can say that meditation doesn't have a reason or doesn't have a purpose. In this respect, it's unlike almost all other things that we do, except perhaps making music and dancing. While when we make music, we don't do it in order to reach a certain point, such as the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, then obviously the fastest players would be the best. Also, when we're dancing, we're not aiming to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When we dance, the journey itself is the point, as when we play music, the playing itself is the point. And exactly the same thing is true in meditation. Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. Therefore, if you meditate for an ulterior motive, that is to say, to improve your mind or to improve your character, to be more efficient in life, you've got your eye on the future and you're not really meditating. The future is a concept. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as tomorrow and there never will be because time is always now. That's one of the the things we discover when we stop talking to ourselves and stop thinking. We find there's only a present, only an eternal now. One meditates for no reason at all, except for the enjoyment of it. Here I would interpose the principle that meditation is fun. It's not something you do as a grim duty. The trouble with religion today is that it's so mixed up with grim duties, you do it because it's good for you, kind of self-punishment. Meditation, when correctly done, has nothing to do with all that. It's a kind of digging the present. It's a kind of delighting with the eternal now. It brings us into a state of peace where we can understand that the point of life, the place where it's at, is simply here and now. This is true here and now and tomorrow, here and now, and a week, here and now. It's always here and now, wherever you are. So, let's sit for a moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on April 24, 1992. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.